19th of June, and you're listening to Kopi Time, a podcast on economies and markets from DBS Group Research. I'm Taimur Beg, Chief Economist. In recent weeks, our theme has been investment. Last week, we spoke with Frank Engels, the CIO of Germany's Union Investment, to discuss the outlook for euro area assets. The week before that, we had discussed responsible investing with Panarchy Partners Muni Madni. So we will continue with the investment theme. Today, we will delve into the world of private equity and real estate. To do that, we have with us Atul Kapoor, co-founder and the current chief investment officer of the Everstone Group. Everstone is a private equity and real estate investment firm. It works with entrepreneurs, corporations, and asset owners across India and Southeast Asia. Founded in 2006 by Atul and Samir Sen, Everstone has a large institutional platform and a team of over 350 professionals based in Singapore, Mumbai, Delhi, Bangalore, London, New York, and Mauritius. Everstone manages assets in excess of $5 billion across private equity, real estate, green infrastructure, and venture capital. Before founding Everstone, Atul spent 12 years at Goldman Sachs, where he was managing director in the Principal Strategies Group based out of London. Atul also worked in the Principal Investment Area Group of Goldman in both Asia and Europe. Atul Kapoor, with great pleasure, I welcome you to Kopi Time. And to paraphrase Lewis Carroll, let's begin at the beginning. 15 years ago, you had a successful and secure career at Goldman Sachs in London, working on investment strategy. What made you go the entrepreneur route? Thank you very much for having me on your podcast, um, and I'm honored to be here. Um, my journey, you know, at Goldman Sachs, anybody who has managed capital or who continues to manage capital, and I, and I use broad generalizations, uh, wants to be an entrepreneur and manage capital on their own. Whilst Goldman is just a fabulous, fabulous place to uh, grow up and build a career and be successful, I think most people who either manage money either for the firm or manage money on behalf of clients of the firm uh, all harbor a desire to be entrepreneurial and I was no different. I think people had to um, find the right construct because it's very easy to entertain the notion of being an entrepreneur but it's a very hard one to pull off in a sensible structured fashion and, and I think I was extremely extremely lucky that uh, I found a like-minded partner who was also at Goldman Sachs with me. He was a friend of mine and we've been friends since he joined Goldman in 1995. And it wasn't until almost 11 years later where um, uh, through multiple conversations in many coffee shops that we had that we bought, uh, we got together to come up with a construct that we thought uh, really could work. And um, I must say that uh, he was right. And, uh, you know, here we are 14 years later, uh, having built what I think is a, is a reasonably successful firm. So I think it, uh, everybody has a desire and I was no different, but it takes uh, a combination of, um, of good luck, uh, a great partner and, um, and a lot of hard work. So walk us through a little bit about that early hard work. Um, you move from the Goldman ladder to sort of starting anew, if you will, uh, and, and you talk about your partner Samir Sen and you going from discussions on coffee shops to actually starting to raise capital. How does one go from that dream to actual dollars in the bank which can be deployed? <laughs> uh, listen, uh, the first thing, the first caveat that I would uh, place and put here is that um, 2006 when we left Goldman Sachs, it was a different world. 
So this was way before even the great financial crisis and we are kind of in, in a, a second crisis uh, and so the world looks very, very different. But I think we were in a world of surplus liquidity at that point in time in 2006 and, you know, bizarrely enough, um, the markets were peaking 06, 07. There was never a better time to leave. There was never a worse time to leave. Worse because, you know, we gave up a lot when we left Goldman, but never a better time to leave because the world was awash with liquidity. And I think we, um, our journey, in our journey, uh, the first bit of luck that we had was that we got the backing uh, of Goldman Sachs, the firm, who decided um, that Samir and I were leaving the firm to uh, back us with their capital. And once that momentum came, it helped us really uh, raise our first fund uh, at a rapid clip because, you know, the world at that time did and still does think very highly of Goldman's ability to pick people that they want to back. So I think we got a significant wind in our sails with Goldman backing us. And um, we started with our first fund, which is a private equity business uh, which was focused predominantly on India at that point in time and our construct was that we would back uh, India if you remember back again for 14 15 years ago the post waves of liberalization there was um, great expectations that India would finally break its sort of socialist shackles and you know adopt a more uh, open western style of, uh, of an economy and uh, capital was flooding in to provide much needed uh, fuel for growth for young entrepreneurs who could feed into different um, the different sectors of the economy as that was bounding ahead. So our um, strategy at that point in time was to feed into the sort of the great consumption dream uh, in India 14 years ago. And with the capital that we had, uh, we set about to deploy it. Uh, so that was the first fund. We moved from there into the second um, a stage of our uh, of our investments where as we looked at a variety of different sectors to invest in we found that our yawning there were yawning gaps in the market uh, in terms of uh, mixing capability with capital and real estate was one of them and uh, that was the second fund uh, that we set up within sort of a year year and a half of our setting up the first fund and I can I can talk to it as we sort of go through the different strategies uh, that you have that 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 different questions that you will ask I'll go through all our different strategies that we currently deploy so I think you know look the entrepreneurial journey uh, is not an easy one uh, I think stepping out from the cocoon and comfort of a large institution like Goldman Sachs where you take a lot for granted whether it's access to capital it's access to human resource it's uh, meeting with like-minded people, um, just the quality of individuals that you engage with, both at a peer level, at a senior and a junior level, just tends to be very, very high. So, and, and I speak, and I'm sure I speak with most large financial institutions globally. And I think when you step out, um, you find that that safety net of capabilities isn't there. And you have to do pretty much everything yourself, come up with an HR policy, hire yourself, make sure after you hired people that you keep them uh, with you and if you remember 2006 um, in that sort of um, great wave of liquidity there was a dearth of talent but no dearth of capital I think the world is uh, in a different state pay place right now and for a young firm to attract high quality capital uh, high quality talent uh, was just not easy because anybody who had you know was recruitable 
had 16 different options available from hedge funds to investment banks to all sorts of different investment pools uh, that were sloshing around in those markets. So I think that if I look back and, and I see the toughest thing that that we encountered was actually putting talent together. And, you know, over the last 14 years, uh, whilst we have consistently raised capital, our talent journey still remains, I would say, we're only 75% of the way through. Because if you see the underpinnings of an asset management business, it's capital and talent. Capital we always can raise. Talent is just difficult. And, you know, ours, unfortunately, is, is a is a longer dated race compared to um, uh, compared to the public markets because our typical hold periods for assets tends to be four or five years. So consistency of teams and consistency of effort of those teams is a huge, huge issue. So I think uh, that to me, if I was to look back and say what has been the toughest part of the journey, it's been that. Just identification and then hiring and then keeping talent uh, wedded to the goal and wedded to, to, the, to the journey has been, I think, the toughest part of our, of our business. So, Atul, we will talk about your company's strategy around India and the strategy around real estate um, through the course of this discussion. But first, let's talk a bit general about your industry. Uh, and by that, I mean the private equity part. Uh, it's got a bit of an element of mystery associated with that and in recent years has attracted some criticism. So help us demystify the inner workings of a private equity firm. <laughs> you know, I think uh, there's more myth to it than, uh, than reality because if you, if you look at, you know, the building blocks them or of, of any investment effort, I don't think they are radically different uh, if you are investing in the public markets or if you're investing in the private markets. You are hunting for high-quality businesses that have defensible moats, uh, that have an element of growth that is that you can bank and underwrite, that have margins that are sustainable, that you think that that with some uh, intervention you can either make the revenue grow faster or get some operating leverage to make the profitability go faster whilst the business continues to be defensible. I think that at that sort of that's the first filter uh, in the framework that whether you're in the public or the private markets, you, you use that. I think where things start becoming, you know, as people sort of start, want to keep the, 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 this in a black box is the, the intervention bit. And again, if you look at um, private equity from a, uh, from a minority growth perspective, it's not radically different uh, than, uh, than public market investing, with one exception that exits are, are harder to pull off. But honestly, if you're backing a bunch of promoters or entrepreneurs as, as uh, in a minority position, at best, you can be supportive capital, but you can't be interventionist. Um, where, uh, what we tend to do and where the sort of the big private equity firms globally, what they tend to do is have a very interventionist approach, which is they will buy a business um, and the investment thesis is in that in that acquisition is is reasonably clear at the beginning and most of the time it is how do you ring as in ring with a w uh, results out of what you've bought uh, and therefore the interventions have to be at, at multiple levels whether it is from a growth perspective it is from a margin perspective it is from an efficiency perspective uh, in terms of exploiting the capabilities of the business better um, better utilization of working capital to release cash um, or it's bringing better talent to work across all levels of the organization. So I think for the investing 
for the passive investing world, uh, it, it just seems to be kind of a very different world that the private equity guys inhabit just because what they do in a company um, is radically different than what the passive investors tend to do. Also, I think um, private equity folks, are, uh, when, they, when they write up their investment thesis, I think the level, uh, leaving aside the financial engineering bit, I'll come to that in, in, in just a second, I think there, that the development of the investment thesis has to be multidimensional. It can't just be around growth or profitability. It has to be around what do you do with this business that makes it more attractive for the next buyer coming through. And remember, in a control situations, you're buying the whole business to sell the whole business. So you really have to, um, you know, think through those elements. So I think um, you ha I, I call it uh, peeling of the onions, the layers that you have to unpeel before you get to the meat. And I think in the public markets, you probably unpeel two or three layers of the business. You do your diligence on the business, your channel checks, you look at what competitive businesses are doing, but there's only so much you can do in terms of really assessing capability and qualities by looking into the business or all aspects of the business. Uh, that, that's the first. And second, even after you unpeel sort of the, th the three layers of an onion, if your assessment of what you see is wrong, the only ability that you have, keeping aside activist shareholder, activist investing styles, the only alternatives that you have is to exit. If you don't like what the management is saying or doing, you vote with your feet. I think in the private equity world, it's different. You're long and you generally can't be wrong. And therefore, you first you peel six layers of the onion and even then you can be wrong. But as you peel these, these layers of the onions, you have to have points of view on, at every level from an organizational structure point of view, from a sales force optimization point of view, from an economic incentives throughout the organizations as to how they work and how do people work to get you what, whatever your end results are. So I, I think the level of sort of deep dive that most private equity firms tend to take is a lot more than what passive investors um, uh, tend, tend to do or make. And, and this is not meant in any um, disrespectful way, but that's just the nature of the business. So even activist shareholders like Bill Ackman, you would say that their sort of top-down intervention in a company is still two, three layers, not five, six layers like yours. I think the, the, the difference is that we get to do, uh, Temur, we get to do complete diligence on a company. Everything from every legal contract the company has entered into. We can review the contracts of every employee in the organization, which we don't, but the, the, the complete sort of CXO suite. We can look and interview and speak with three levels of management deeper into the organization. We can do, we can let loose accountants, consultants, and lawyers to map the company's positioning in the market, not from an outside-in perspective, but from an inside-out perspective. So I just think that access to information, that doesn't mean your decision-making is any better, but start with the access to information, and that's just way more than you can get on an outside-in perspective. So. I think then the difference between the good private equity firms and the bad private equity firms, uh, good and bad as uh, evidenced by the returns they generate, is then what do you do with the information? How do you actually make an investment decision that whether or not you want to buy an asset? But it doesn't stop there. It is after you've bought the asset, you know, what do you do with the asset that ultimately delivers returns to you? And the last bit um, of 
sort of the last arrow um, uh, in in the armory in the quiver is your ability to do financial engineering in a business that you acquire which if you are a passive investor in the public markets there's very little that you can do you can buy a leveraged company and there's embedded sort of embedded leverage in the business but you can't really do all the financial engineering and capital structuring that you can which you know in some cases delivers a significant portion of the returns and in dislocations in the markets you know detracts from a significant portion of the returns that uh, that 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 you generate so i think the 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 uh, i'm not sure there is a, a lot of mystery behind what private equity guys do it is true that the compensation styles of these private equity folks just because of the nature of the market in terms of forget the fee but the fact that you can participate uh, to a large extent relative to the public markets in the upside of that you generate for your for your investors I think what that does is it sort of takes the private equity crowd um, because the path to riches for the successful guys, at least in the Western world, is has been reasonably rapid and that puts them on a pedestal. You know, there are many billionaires in the private equity in the hedge fund market. There aren't so many billionaires in, you know, in a long only market. And part of that is just the nature of the, the structure of the, of, of the economics of, of the business. Now, the question, of course, is why do these guys get paid more versus, you know, if you are a good enough or a smart enough investor in the public markets? I think it boils down to leaving aside what returns you generate. And that's the constant um, tussle in the markets because, in theory, private equity is supposed to, to, to deliver real alpha because beta you can access through ETFs and now, you know, you can access through really relatively low cost options. So why would you pay full fees and a 20% of the carry structure to the private equity folks unless they can really drive alpha? And I think that, uh, as most private equity firms and, you know, we're no exception, like to at least continue to market ourselves as true alpha generators, in a, in a, a, you know, relative to any benchmark that you will have. So I think, um, you know, the, uh, the, the success stories in the private equity world, especially in the Western private equity world in the U.S., abound. Uh, and the characters who um, you know who personify that uh, are larger than life, and you know then myths get written about them, and myths get created around them. Correct. Um, and want to go a little deeper on the issue of the financial engineering. Um, the general sort of narrative in the market is the leverage aspect that you know you engage with a company, you champion their expansion, and the expansion is championed at least on the capital side, by leverage. So one example that you and I sort of exchanged emails about recently was the Hertz bankruptcy case. Wall Street Journal wrote a big story about it just a few days ago, uh, talked about that the fatal mistake for Hertz was the leverage acquisition of Dollar Thrifty and, and how that debt-driven expansion model was the reason why sort of Hertz went bankrupt. Um, is, is it a, you know, typical story? Is it a private equity-specific story? I mean, how do you sort of look at this whole Hertz story from overall sort of, you know, perspective on the industry? I think, uh, <clears throat> you know, leverage is not uh, a particular and specific domain only of private equity. Um, I, I think uh, the perils of low interest rates um, manifest itself into many uh, sort of, I'm, I'm searching for the right word, but, you know, bad behavior. Okay, so, um, efficient capital allocation and what's the most efficient use of capital that a company can allocate. So, there have been many instances where 
and it's been true of the last 10 years that uh, and you can argue that for companies to raise debt in the markets to do share buybacks is you know is, is just a on one hand it's a great decision if you can raise funds cheaply but every time there is a dislocation in the market it turns out that it's a poor decision so i think you have to, you know leverage is a double edged sword and you have to really use it very very judiciously and how much is enough um, function of you know the leadership of a business as to what they think is right uh, for all stakeholders and not necessarily shareholders because you know when companies lever up too much and they die the stakeholders which are the employees are the first ones to suffer in addition to the shareholders but when they lever up and buy a share, do share buybacks it's only the shareholders that that benefit so i think leaders have to decide on what the optimal use of of capital is i think private equity tends to have a more i won't say sophisticated but they tend to have a slightly more aggressive view of of the use of leverage in any market there are excesses and what happens is that uh, um, uh, you know until there is a spectacular bust uh, which people can point to and then the press sort of feeds off it uh, these practices continue so i i'm not sure that this is an exclusive preserve or bailiwick of the private equity folks which is poor decisions to use leverage to make acquisitions or poor decisions to use leverage to um, uh, to do shareholder buybacks uh, but what happens is that uh, when private equity um, firms collapse um, you know the, the, it's it's an easy target to point to because public's perception i'm not sure who i think the german finance minister 10 years ago i think after the great financial crisis called them vultures um and all they are known for is asset stripping and or you know cut cut cost cutting and and firing workers to increase profitability and i i'm you know it, it I, i'm not sure listen in every in every industry uh there are poor practices i won't say bad but poor practices and and you know the private equity industry is as guilty as any other for making poor decisions and poor choices but if you if you think um you know and, and if you if you if you have lived and grown up in in asia um the only thing and where access to the debt markets has has historically been poor uh the only um hat that you can hang when you um when you're looking at a potential investment the only thesis that works is growth and so you know financial leverage uh, does play a part specific especially if you have the ability to to uh, access pools of capital where interest rates are low um, but you know most sort of asian private equity firms will tend to focus on growth ahead of financial engineering financial engineering in low growth markets when you're buying mature businesses how do you ring uh, you know juice out of that investment especially when if you're targeting a mid turns routine mid teens return and you know the cost of leverage is sub 4% you know the spread between what you can get uh what you can in in theory get for your equity versus where you can borrow leverage in your capital structure i just think that um um the attraction is too much i think the second problem uh, if you ask me also is when there is uh it's the problem of plenty when there is too much liquidity in the system uh standards tend to drop and we all have you know been hearing that one of the biggest issues in the gfc and then 
it sort of corrected for a while and then again it lapsed into its original uh, its original place original phase is you know just the covenants around debts that that you can that when you raise so what gets uh, a, a lot of the companies into trouble is um, a lack of you know tight covenants that keep these companies and the borrowers down the straight and narrow so if you have very loose covenants you know you just are tempted it's like taking a kid into a candy shop right you can tell them to be self disciplined and they'll remain self disciplined for 5 minutes and after that you know people tend to go crazy so i'm not putting the blame at the you know by any means at the door of the lenders but i think this thing goes hand in hand when there is excess liquidity people can see that they can you know the markets will afford you an opportunity to borrow um poor practices creep in and whenever there is a spectacular bust uh the narrative goes back to you know the gang of vultures who who do nothing but asset stripping so that's my view on where the markets are no oh, absolutely and uh, we will we'll come back to that uh, issue of you know where the markets are and what low interest rates mean uh, for the longer term a uh, little later but now from the general to the specific everstone and its large presence in india how are things there uh walk us through your experience in india over the last decade and a half <laughs> it's been i must say uh, you know a um, it's been a very interesting learning curve and both my partner and i had sort of invested in many markets around the world um and because we were of indian stock we felt that we were uniquely qualified uh, to invest in india without breaking a sweat and you know markets humble you and i think um I think we learned a lot of lessons as as we started our journey and you know the first lesson that we learned was when we looked around and saw that you know the the people who created the most amount of wealth in India over the last sort of 15 20 years have been entrepreneurs and not uh, fund managers in the US you know you can point to many 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 fund managers private equity titans who made a lot of money for themselves in addition to you know entrepreneurs who made money for themselves i think in asia and i speak not just of india but asia you would be hard pressed to point to more than a handful of uh, of people who have been very successful and created a lot of wealth in, in the asset management industry and that's the nature of the beast that asia is where founder founder networks entrepreneurs those are the guys who seize opportunities and um, and create wealth and i think what we this that, that was the first sort of realization the second thing that we realized at least from the first part of our journey is that um you know we found that while star capital was meant to harness um the talent that we were backing more often than not we found ourselves um sitting in a in the driver seat we thought we were sitting in the driver seat by having provided capital but with no steering wheel <laughs> the steering wheel was in the hand of the other guy and kind of we had to go wherever he or she took us in that journey and after about 3 or 4 years of this uh, we decided that this is was not a game that we wanted to play so if we had the capital and whilst we don't know everything about every industry uh, you know our job should be to marry capital with talent and an opportunity that's kind of the trifecta in which we operate in and we found that we were making the right sector calls but for some bizarre reason uh, our calls on the managements we wanted to back at that early stage of our evolution were not that great and it was that and it was very frustrating because no matter how much value we wanted to add 
um, very often we would get this from the entrepreneurs that listen in the value add bit you just give me the ad meaning the money you keep the value <laughs> and so what we did was uh, we sort of a third of our way into this journey so four or five years into our, our, our setting up our business we pivoted away and uh, decided that listen uh, we will be owners of businesses where we will be responsible for hiring the talent and managing the growth and the profitability of the businesses going forward and and since that time I think we've been well rewarded for the efforts because then uh, it is for us to either succeed or fail and the decisions that we take are the good or, or, or bad so that's been you know the one significant part of learnings of the journey and also what's happened in India is that when we started in 2006 the notion that you could buy businesses and, and this is typical of all of Asia um, and it's true in most Asian countries except those in North Asia and true even in China that you can't segregate a business from its founder. The founders are defined by businesses that they set up in Asia and they're so emotionally wrapped up in what they do that it's just very hard for them to give up their baby. That's the supply side of the equation and the demand side of the equation 14-15 years ago was that there weren't enough private equity firms waiting on the other side to receive these businesses because the way the, the uh, private equity world had evolved in the West, that concept still had to make its way over into Asia and it made its way into North Asia, Korea and Japan a lot earlier than it made its way into South and Southeast Asia. So there was nobody to receive the ball if a founder wanted to sell the company. And I think what we've done is from 2000 until the markets have continued to evolve we along with our some of our peers have really pushed and provided the demand side uh, of the equation that we are here to catch your business and hold it and provide it with the necessary capability sets capital and and competence to drive it to the next level and hopefully then pass it to the next owner rightful owner of the assets and so that the first thing is that the markets in india and the rest of asia have evolved whereby today we have no issue not not every conversation goes down that path but there is enough uh, from a supply side perspective, we can sit down and have sensible conversations with entrepreneurs to take over their businesses and run them as ours. So I think that's the big change from a private equity perspective that's happened. Um, I think if you look at where India has evolved, you know, we started investing in India when it was like a 1.6, 1.7 trillion dollar economy and the power of compounding on a nominal basis has brought us to sort of 3 trillion. So in that, you know, I think for our, our job is to find businesses inside that ecosphere which grow at one and a half times normal GDP. And if you grow, India's grows as 10% GDP normal, you know, depending upon where the real and inflation sits. If you can find businesses that are compounding at 15%, you know, 70% of our job is done. Because then you have to sustain that momentum and then sort of eke out returns in terms of operating leverage and what can you do to make the profitability grow faster and, and so on and so forth. So as you look at India today, you know, I think, uh, is that your question, Tamur, how do we see India today? I think India is in a bit of a, um, it's in a bit of a tight spot. Um, you know, the fact that the $3 trillion economy will shrink by 5% to 7% is less of an issue for us. Because, you know, people forget that um, people forget the notion of cycles in economics. And when you have, uh, you know, 10 years of um, undisturbed growth, whether the growth is 4% or 8%, you know, very, it's very easy 
uh, for people to just forget that cycles mean that you know a sinusoidal wave includes waves going down. So I, we don't worry too much about the fact that you are going to see, you know, as part of this global pandemic, a five seven percent contraction of the economy. I think the issue that we have uh, tends to be a slightly longer term because you know anything that we buy today we have to hold for five years, and as we peer through the fog of uh, all the noise there is on the pandemic and issues and slowdowns and shutdowns, I think what what concerns us uh, is uh, are, are two things. One. Uh, clearly the balance sheet of the individual that comprises this three trillion economy how badly is that going to get affected because remember India is still um, you know unlike well China of today but unlike China of sort of 10 years ago consumption is domestic consumption still is a big large theme it's a large populous country with a large economy so if the balance sheet of the individual is impaired in any way uh, either you know Physically, i.e., he can't, he doesn't have the earnings capacity, or mentally, as worries about spending that money and worrying about the longevity of his job and everything else, and the amount of money he has to spend on healthcare because health is kind of top of mind for everyone. So, if the balance sheet of the individual and, and the propensity to spend gets impacted, that for us, as we are trying to feed in to that sort of one and a half times nominal GDP growth. Uh, that is not a great environment for us. So I think as we as we look through this, I think we're going to have a rough 24 months uh, till either a vaccine arrives or people learn to live with you know what COVID-19 has to has to offer in terms of you know potential for disease and sickness. So I think the next 24 months are going to be from an individual's balance sheet perspective uh, somewhat complicated. The second thing uh, which worries us, then the second balance sheet that we have to worry about is the balance sheet of the country. And, you know, and that is sort of a contradiction. There's a dichotomy there that the external balance sheet of the, of the country with half a trillion dollar reserves is in rude health. Uh, but the fiscal balance sheet of the company uh, of the country is in poor health. And when the fiscal balance sheet of the country is in poor health, even though I, I suspect the, the 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 mandate to focus on inflation and on fiscal deficits, whilst it was embedded in the latter in law and, and the former in, in in the monetary policy mandates that the Reserve Bank had, I, I just worry that in this um, in in this global mayhem, uh, I think those two are going to be sidelined, and if they get sidelined, um, you know the worries that we have is that that stress is going to show up either on the currency. Uh, or in some other, fa- or in ratings downgrades, or in some other fashion. So I think the wiggle room, as far as uh, the economy is concerned, is a little constrained. Uh, it, it concerns us, but it, you know, I, I think that, uh, and a lot of people have, you know, in our in our engagement with our investors, one of the things that has come up is, you know, what if India lapses back into a four or five percent growth for a long period of time. You know, we'll have to wait and see. But, you know, I, I think the world is a relative place. It's not an absolute place. So if India grows, you know, 4% real with 3% inflation, 4% inflation, you know, 8% nominal relative to the rest of the world, it's, you know, not that bad. On an absolute basis, India can't afford to grow 4% real, partly because, you know, just the demographics. So everybody talks of the demographic benefit that India has. It can turn into a demographic curse because if you can't really get the economy to move to create new jobs that demographics is not going to help you it's going to hurt you so i think uh, you know india has to sort of uh, tread a fine line over the next 24 months 
in terms of how, uh, given limited fiscal uh, flexibility that they have, given that you know they are the rating agencies have sort of all are now on on the on the fence from a um, from a from a investment grade versus non-investment grade. Uh, and um, the fact that the personal balance sheets are going to get impacted. So it's going to be a, a tough sort of 24 months in terms of finding, uh, you know, for the country and and, uh, and the individual to trade. What do we get paid for? You know, I, I think our investors give us money um, not to invest in the macro, but invest in the micro. So our job is that you take that environment and then use your judgment and skills to find assets that continue to grow. So, you know, in all of this, you know, four years ago, as an example, Temur, we pivoted to healthcare and IT services because our view is that uh, in IT services, India has an unmatched capability set and healthcare um, was a more defensible sector and we had no idea what was to come down the line because, you know, as you look at by any metric, you know, from a percentage uh, spend on healthcare to just the physical infrastructure available and the needs of the populace, uh, we just felt it was a good place to be, so we over-indexed our last fund into IT services and healthcare, and that's really stood us in good, good, good uh, stead. And I think we'd like to, as we look forward over the next 24 months, I think that sector selection, I think, will continue to play out. I think uh, the competitive nature of India from an IT services perspective will will continue to be there. I think the world is going to pivot to e everything very, very, very rapidly. It was no longer a choice that organizations have. And in that rush to actually move, we think that the spend uh, to the detriment of all other segments is going to be massively in it towards digital enablement of businesses. And I think India over the next five years is going to be a as much a beneficiary as it was in the whole Y2K movement when that uh, when the world pivoted into uh, solving that problem. I think India is going to be a long-term beneficiary for that. So. I worry about from an overall perspective on the economy and the macro, but I think we live in the micro. So we have to find, uh, and, and I think there is enough to do if you, if, if, you, if you look in the right places in terms of businesses that you could buy that could benefit even in this environment. So Atul, your vision on healthcare and IT, of course, is playing out very, very well. Uh, tell us about some of the other sectors where Everstone has large exposure in India, for example, real estate and logistics, and perhaps even the food and beverage side of the economy. Sure. Um, so real estate, you know, uh, going back uh, then on, on the history that we talked about, 2007, we started looking at the logistics uh, industry to really find out where the value levers were and what really made sense and not or not. And we realized that one part of the value chain uh, that just did not exist in India, this is as recently as 14 years ago, uh, was high quality infrastructure on the warehousing side. So this is a $1.6 trillion economy that had two warehouses, uh, non-banking finance companies that were traditionally the sole, in many cases, sole providers of capital to this to the sector of the real estate industry uh, are, are sitting in with impaired balance sheets and no hope of getting access to capital to manage their liability side. So we think that both the residential sector uh, as well as you know a third of the non-banking finance sector is, is in, in very dire straits that requires a significant amount of fixing. So that's kind of our view on, on India and, and then real estate. Um, one more area in India where you have been uh, active is green infrastructure. Uh, tell us a bit about that. So you know our our, our commitment to uh, to climate change. Um, you know about two years ago, uh, a little over two years ago, 
the British government and the Indian government were hunting for uh, asset managers to manage a pool of capital to be invested in green infrastructure in India. And this is one of Prime Minister Modi's, um, you know, key projects uh, as to reduce India's reliance on oil and therefore just the greenification, if that is a word that I can I can use, of, uh, of, of Indian industry. So everything from generation into all other derivative industries and it's not just putting up, um, it's not just putting up solar uh, and uh, wind in generation infrastructure but just what incremental industries can use green energy um, everything from mobility to waste to water um, so the two governments came together and they were hunting for uh, an asset manager and we through a connect that, that we had were approached by uh, BP British Petroleum and one of their um, uh, green uh, infrastructure uh, efforts called light source and we partnered up with them we bid for the mandate and we won the mandate from the governments um, so we have two LPs in that two investors the, the two res the respective governments and the mandate is again to look across investing in themes going back to what, what I mentioned um, uh, the more uh, IT services and healthcare so in IT services um, I think what we are doing is we're spending a lot of our time hunting for actually businesses in the U.S. that have backends in India mm. or in other parts of Asia. So across you know companies that do IT services in in, in the digital arena or healthcare arena that that have a physical presence in this part of the world. Um, so we're hunting for businesses there. Uh, a it's a deeper universe to mine, there, and within within that universe, there's a large Indian diaspora that are settled in our entrepreneurs who've scaled businesses and brought them up to a certain level and are e either looking to monetize or have run out of steam to grow the businesses further. So those are proving to be reasonably good hunting grounds for us. So Indian diaspora in the IT services industry who have scaled their businesses and are, are looking for an exit or a partner. So that's one. On the healthcare side, um, again, you know, India's capabilities on the chemistry, we've invested in businesses in India, exporting to the US, but we've also invested in businesses in the U.S. that are either doing research or manufacturing of their or the pharmaceutical products uh, in in India. And then within Asia, our focus uh, is along two vectors: food and food services. We like a lot. It's we have that expressed in our portfolio. So, for example, we are owners of Burger King and Domino's in Indonesia, and we really like the QSR sector. It's more science than art, um, and you know it is a reasonably robust, notwithstanding. You know the models that will have to change to accommodate the pandemic with a high customer touch. We think that you know foreign certain foreign brands or certain North American brands really travel well in most Asian countries in the QSR bucket, and we've had success in in, in that segment. So food food services is is a big theme for us in in the rest of uh, Southeast Asia, and then healthcare remains a big focus for us even here, and that tends to be more in terms of services and products rather than you know uh, healthcare services like hospitals so healthcare and food here it services and uh, and farmer and farmer related uh, services in the us so that and then domestic consumption in india so if you look at sort of the three pillars of our investment themes in in private equity it's the india us corridor is one domestic indian growth is the second and then on an opportunistic basis in two sectors in in the rest of asia uh, which is why we have the physical footprints that we have between Singapore, India, you know, uh, the UK, um, and and in the US. Well, we're lucky to have you in Singapore, Atul. Uh, that was 
Very insightful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Temur. Uh, honored to be here and thank you very much. Uh, no, and wish you and Everson the very best of luck in generating lots and lots of alphas. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thanks to our listener for listening in. Uh, you've been listening to Kopi Time. Uh, you can find all our research in multimedia by Googling DBS Group Research. Thank you.